Dee Vacordigalaire, my name is James Nagel, welcome to The Irish Nation Lives. Since his arrival in the United States in July of 1919, Eamon de Valera and his Irish delegation had not seen eye to eye with the Friends of Irish Freedom, the largest and most influential of the Irish American societies. De Valera believed that the Friends were overly distracted with US politics, devoting their resources to elections instead of gaining recognition of the Irish Republic. His main rival in that organisation, Judge Daniel Cohallan, argued that de Valera understood nothing of how power functioned in the United States, and that his goal of full recognition was unattainable. The Irish Americans were the best place to understand what could be achieved and how to go about it. Although the Irish delegation and the Friends of Irish Freedom appeared to be a united front in public, by the summer of 1920 they were barely on speaking terms. The petty infighting that Mard attempts to have an Irish plank proposed at the Republican Party convention reflected poorly on de Valera, but British attempts to damage him further actually played into his hands. The publication of captured letters from the Irish delegation to Dáil Éireann, which were critical of the Friends of Irish Freedom, were the first indication to the public at large that something was wrong. The letters accused the Irish Americans of withholding support and blocking de Valera's attempts to gain recognition. They made public the feud that had been waged for almost a year, but only presented the Irish delegation's point of view, behind which many quickly rallied. De Valera used the publicity to push for a reorganisation of the Friends of Irish Freedom and called on every member eligible to attend a meeting of the National Council on the 17th of September at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. Only two proposals were put forward one of which would have given de Valera and his associates near-total control of the Friends of Irish Freedom. Cohelan's supporters tried to physically block de Valera from entering the meeting, and there was even an attempt to disrupt the proceedings by a squad of priests loyal to the Irish delegation. Insults and accusations were thrown back and forth by the rival factions, and when it became clear that his proposal would be defeated, de Valera left the room. It had long been rumoured that if he couldn't take control of the Friends of Irish Freedom, de Valera would split the movement and create his own organisation with himself at the helm. He hinted that this might be necessary after walking out of the National Council meeting, and on the 20th of October, he announced the establishment of the American Association for the Recognition of the Irish Republic, a name that sacrificed simplicity in favour of explicitly outlining its goals. This jostling for power in the United States appeared trivial when put side by side with events in Ireland. Michael Fitzpatrick had died after 67 days on hunger strike on the 17th, and later in the week, Terence McSweeney and Joe Murphy would follow him. Some will see in de Valera's actions a foreshadowing of his walkout during the Anglo-Irish Treaty debates in January of 1922, believing that he was driven in both cases only by ego and a desire for power. But de Valera wasn't the only person tearing organisations apart to bring them under Irish control. The same battle he waged in public was also being fought in secret, as the Irish Republican Brotherhood sought to enforce its authority on Clonmagail. Shortly after the IRB was founded in 1856 in Dublin, a sister organisation, the Fenian Brotherhood, was founded in the United States. Its membership gained military experience in the American Civil War and pushed through with a poorly planned rising in Ireland in 1867. In its aftermath, a new group called Clan Magoyle emerged and absorbed the Fenian Brotherhood. Under the leadership of the exiled John Devoy, 
Clan na Gael bankrolled the Irish Republican Brotherhood and dominated the revolutionary directory established to oversee both organisations, while Devoy would provide almost all of the financing for the 1916 Rising. Clan Gael's independence from, and supremacy over, the Irish Republican Brotherhood was resented by those who came to power afterwards, most notably the President of the Supreme Council from mid-1919, Michael Collins. The Supreme Council had sent its former President, Harry Boland, to the United States to organise transfers of money and weapons with Clan Gael, but also to begin paving the way for an IRB takeover. In early 1920, de Valera gave an interview in which he said Britain should declare a Monroe Doctrine for Ireland, a statement for which he was heavily criticised by John Devoy. Regardless of who was right or wrong, Collins felt that Devoy's public criticisms weakened the Irish movement in the United States, and he sent Boland an ultimatum to be issued to Clonmagoyle in the event of any further difficulties. The ultimatum required the executive of Clonmagoyle to declare in writing whether it considered itself a subsidiary of the IRB or an independent organisation, with a clear implication that the latter opinion meant a split. By August, Boland had secured only verbal agreements that Devoy and Clonmagoyle would take limited direction from Dublin and that, on all subjects regarding the policy and interests of the Irish Republic, the wishes of the President shall be respected and followed. While a settlement seemed to be in sight, Boland soon concluded that Daniel Cohelan had blocked its implementation and while it had been assumed that Clonmagoyle controlled the Friends of Irish Freedom from the shadows, he now believed it was actually the other way around. It soon became clear to those in the know that a showdown was coming, and with Devoy backing Cohelan to the hilt, Boland felt that he was left with no option but to excommunicate Clonmagoyle. On the 22nd of October, two days after de Valera announced the creation of a new organisation, Boland issued a press release announcing that Clonmagoyle was no longer affiliated with the Irish Republican Brotherhood. By early November, Boland was able to report to Collins that he was pushing ahead with the creation of a new body, imaginatively named Clonmagoyle Reorganised. A new executive was appointed, chaired by Joseph McGarrity, who had remained dedicated to Boland and de Valera since their arrivals in America. Dermot Lynch, the National Secretary who had done so much to build the Friends of Irish Freedom, held McGarrity and his Philadelphia branch responsible for all of the infighting and factionalism that had marred de Valera's tour by convincing him that Devoy and Cohelan were opposed to him. On the 31st of October, de Valera addressed what would be his final rally in the United States, as a crowd of 40,000 gathered at the Polo Grounds in New York to commemorate the death on hunger strike of Terence McSweeney. In November, a commission of US political, media and religious figures opened in Washington to hear first-hand evidence of the situation in Ireland. While the British government initially promised safe passage for anyone who was called to attend from Ireland, threats to their lives meant that members of Terence McSweeney's family and his successor as Lord Mayor of Cork had to be smuggled into the United States. The Commission sat until March of 1921 when it issued a damning report laying the blame for conditions in Ireland at the feet of the British government, contributing to the declaration of a truce in July. De Valera used the opening of the Commission to officially launch the American Association for the Recognition of the Irish Republic on the 17th of November, placing it under the presidency of Irish-American oil tycoon Edward L. Doheny. 
While he intended to stay on in the United States into the middle of 1921, events in Ireland changed those plans. There had been rumours of peace talks in Dublin between British and Irish representatives, mixed with a dramatic increase in violence. In Galway, a pregnant mother was shot dead by a passing lorry of black and tans, a priest was lured from his house in the dead of night and executed, and the auxiliaries burned and half-buried the bodies of the Lochnan brothers after torturing and mutilating them. The killing of suspected intelligence officers by the IRA in Dublin and the British response of killing spectators at a football match on Bloody Sunday made front-page news across the world, but also saw a wave of raids across the Irish capital. Less than a week later, on the 26th of November, the acting president of Dáil Éireann in de Valera's absence, Arthur Griffith, was arrested. Members of the government were required to nominate individuals to take over in the event of their capture or death. Cahal Brua was initially Griffith's nominee, but he backed Collins in the growing feud between the two men, and shortly before his arrest, Griffith switched his nomination to Collins. For some... This was an alarming overconcentration of authority in the hands of a single individual. Alongside his new role as acting president of Dáil Éireann, the 29-year-old was also Minister for Finance, Director of Intelligence of the Irish Republican Army, and President of the Supreme Council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Should anything happen to de Valera, this acting position might become permanent, and should Collins himself be captured or killed, it would cause severe disruption to multiple organisations. Added to this was the unnerving fact that Collins now led Dáil Éireann and a secret organisation that had, until late 1919, considered itself as the legitimate government of the Republic. In the first week of December, all of these events, and a sense that he had achieved all he could in the United States, led de Valera to begin making plans to return to Ireland. He travelled to Philadelphia to say goodbye to the ever-faithful Joseph McGarrity and to appoint him as trustee of the funds raised in the bond drive. Of the $5 million collected, only $1 million had been sent back to Ireland and another million spent on expenses. The rest was locked up in a convoluted structure which put it largely beyond the reach of Dáil Éireann. This was apparently done so that if peace talks led to something less than a republic, even if backed by a majority of the Irish people, the funds would be available to a party opposed to this compromise. Eventually, many of those who had purchased bonds were convinced to transfer ownership to de Valera personally, to be used to establish the Irish Press newspaper in 1931. On the 10th of December, following a meal at the Waldorf Astoria with McGarrity and Boland, who was remaining on in the United States, de Valera was smuggled on board the White Star Line's Celtic, which set sail the following day. The British cabinet initially planned to prevent him from entering Ireland, but reconsidered when arguments were made that he had better judgment than Griffith and could bring the militants in line. When he arrived at Liverpool on the 20th, orders were given that he shouldn't even be searched, and he arrived in Dublin on the 23rd of December, the day on which the Government of Ireland Act, that formally partitioned Ireland into two separate devolved administrations, received royal assent. After a year and a half, de Valera returned home to a much-changed Ireland. Though he had received numerous reports during his time in the United States, he was quite out of touch with the military situation. He questioned Cahal Brua as to why he was carrying a gun at their first meeting, 
and the chief of staff of the IRA, Richard Mulcahy, claims that he was told that the guerrilla tactics used were bad for publicity in America. But possibly worse than all of this, de Valera ignored the growing spat between Brewer and Collins, from whom he resumed his position as president of Dáil Éireann. Already, factions were beginning to form around each of the men, and the divisions that would emerge nearly a year later following the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty were starting to appear. When de Valera sensationally suggested that Collins be sent to the United States to take his place, the proposal received unanimous backing from the cabinet, many members of which had been on the receiving end of Collins's critical tirades. The talks of a possible truce in which to discuss peace would fail in December over demands that the IRA surrender their weapons, and the war would continue. The British believed the conflict was turning in their favour and didn't want to discuss peace again until after the May elections, which would set up a Northern Irish government. Over the next few months, the IRA would be pushed to breaking point as the Crown forces attempted to deliver a killer blow. Through all this, de Valera would have to steer an increasingly divided dole as the severity of the situation in Ireland became apparent to him. Accorda. Thank you for joining me on The Irish Nation Lives. Slongafold.